Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest introduced to you now. Jane Boland believes that research in healthcare and nutrition needs better funding and stronger minds. As the Chief Operating Officer of the Noakes Foundation, she established Eat Better South Africa alongside many inspiring colleagues and Professor Timothy Noakes, who we hosted in episode 61 of our show. Jane believes in building stronger collaboration in the nutrition and science game. After realizing the dichotomy between, between brand research budgets and human research budgets, she decided to leave the formal research world and committed to bringing her global experience in big business research, systems, and policy change expertise into new areas to affect change to human health. In her MBA at Leeds University, she focused on the regulation of marketing to children in the food and fast food categories, later conducting pan-European media research and strategy evaluation in this area for various global health bodies and brands. As an extension of her collaborative vision for the future of human health and better healthcare systems, she co-founded the Nutrition Network and has been its managing director since it was founded in 2018. Jane Bullen, what an absolute honor it is to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here, Casey. It's lovely to host you. I'm so glad I got to meet you in person at the Symposium for Metabolic Health in San Diego. You gave a wonderful presentation, which I'd love to talk with you about today. Um, it was the first one that I got to see. I got in a little bit late on Thursday, so I missed the entire day on Thursday. And yours was the very first one on Friday. You mentioned having a little bit of butterflies before you got on stage, but you did an amazing presentation. You should be very proud. Thank you so much. I'm glad you made it. Yeah, it's straight into the belly of things. You landed in the gut. The best place to start. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I, I think I think we take it for granted that we have those sayings. And you mentioned in your talk, like you have that gut feeling. You feel things in your gut. Like that's not an accident. That is by design. There's a reason why we say those things in our daily conversation. Absolutely. And I think it's also important to know that a lot of people lose their gut feeling. So it's like we we remember a time where we had that feeling in our gut. But many of us, as we grow older and as we go through life, and maybe it's as our gut and our microbiome deteriorates or is damaged or abused, we actually start to lose that. And I've seen it as a mother. I've gone through this journey with my son where I see how actually visceral and communicative the gut is. And particularly in children, it's like when there's anxiety or when they're not feeling right about certain things, they showed up and he, he shows it up in his gut. So he'll have tummy pain. He won't say like, I'm nervous about this. He'll have tummy pain or he'll have an actual symptom. That's very, you know, a real GI symptom. Yeah. So it's beautiful. The guts actually do know. Yeah. They've always known. Mm. And we forget and we've done things to them that have taken us away from their absolute intrinsic and alchemical ancient wisdom that they offer and represent us as human beings. Yeah. They are the all-knowing organ, the all-knowing system of the body. So well said. I love that. I was just having a conversation with a client yesterday. She was mentioning that she, you know, since cleaning up her diet, she brought back a food that she had cut out and had cut out for a very long time. It didn't used to cause her problems when she was eating, you know, a more crappy kind of diet. Now she ate this thing one time and it upset her stomach quite a bit. And she was like, what's going on with this? Like, is this a good thing that I'm, I'm feeling this a little bit more? Or is this a bad thing that my gut is not very resilient anymore? And I said, I don't really know. I don't have the answer, but I noticed those same things. You can really resensitize yourself to food that you probably should not be eating once you get that out. I do think that the microbiome has the ability to somewhat reset and, and we might get a little bit more sensitive to things. 
Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, and that being said, we can also become less sensitive to things. So a lot of people think that they're allergic to something for life. And then when they reset their microbiome, actually later on, they, they can easily digest, they can easily absorb, they can, you know, move through things in with ease. And they can there's a much clearer communication. So if something is not healthy, it's going to shout at you. And that's what you want. I mean, you want your body to tell you really clearly when it's like not happy with something. That's what a fever, you want your body to switch a fever on very quickly and to burn whatever it is that's come into it. You don't want it to kind of be the stagnant flat line that's not communicating with you. So communicative gut is amazing because if you can actually listen to it and hear it, and if it is actually healthy enough to communicate, then you're, you're, you're good to go because you can just listen to your gut. You can just trust it. You can eat things and go, is this healthy for me? You know, it's an obvious, and that's what I tried to talk about. Or I tried to bring into my talk was there's a lot of science, of course, but the truth of the gut is, and that's, you know, the microbiome is so individual. It's not like genetics where we're all 99.9% the same. We have that 10% overlap, but we are 90% different. So my microbiome and yours is 90% different. You cannot tell me what to eat and I cannot tell you what's good for your microbiome and your body. I mean, it would be absurd. I'm sitting in Africa on a mountain with the soil and a microbiome around a biome around me that is totally different to where you are in the world. And your gut knows what it needs and what is good for it, as does mine. And ultimately, no diet book can really tell me that. I mean, that's the truth of it. I cannot print off a diet sheet and go, oh, this is what's healthy for my gut and for my body. Um, I have to, you know, trust my gut and trust my intuition and my body and my health to guide me there. And the gut is such an obvious place to start. I mean, there's lots of things, of course, that the body shows that many of the systems show our symptoms, but the first place is the gut. The most obvious symptoms and communicative signals that come from the body come from the gut. Yeah. It's they're talking to us all the time if we if we listen. And most people don't listen. They've forgotten how to, they haven't understood it for so long. They are so far away from a healthy gut and a communication mechanism with their gut. And that's ultimately what the gut brain is. It's, you know, it's the fact that the brain and the gut are one thing. They are not separate. They are, to some extent, and I argued in my talk in San Diego, they're the same system. You know, it's neurons in the gut and neurons in the brain. They're they're very similar. And we have to understand that communication mechanism and and respect it and really listen very deeply to it if we want to find health or rediscover health. Yeah. is perhaps a better way. That's, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's a great segue into your story. And it's just so endlessly frustrating. Like now we've done over 500 of these podcast episodes. A majority of them are about nutrition. And I don't feel one iota closer to knowing anything about any of this stuff and inviting all the, the best experts in the world that say the same thing. Like, look, we there is some variance. We are different. Your story is, is very interesting, how you found eventually a low-carbohydrate diet, but it wasn't the very best thing for you to continue to do in a very strong fashion. And that's the other thing that can happen with a lot of us as well is like one thing can work for now, but that might not necessarily mean it's going to work in the future for people. So trusting ourselves and trusting our gut, like you are mentioning is, is the best thing that we can recommend for people. And speaking about your story, you really seem to have lived two separate lives. Can you tell us about, um, your previous life and, and how your health was going and what you were doing to try to fix it and, and how that all shifted eventually? 
So I was on the the career ladder. Um, I was living in London. I was traveling internationally at least once, if not two or three times a week, um, doing a lot of you know nighttime flights, working 14 to 18 hour days. I was having cappuccinos throughout the day and not eating, not looking after myself, high stress, highly toxic, toxic lifestyle. And of course, what happened was, I got worse and worse. I got sicker and sicker. I had metabolic disease that was worsening. Um, I, I got to the point where I was so concerned about my health that I quit my job and danced and was a full-time dance teacher. And my insulin resistance got worse and worse. Um, I was traveling the world at that point, studying dance and staying in these sort of organic vegetarian communities and living what would be on paper like the healthiest life at that point and still getting sicker and sicker. Um, and still going in the story of like the green diet, the green juice diet, the healthy low GI diet, the whole grain diet. Like I was so hooked into that, that I ended up very, very ill. And I would say almost to the point of death when I had my son and moved back to South Africa and then had to go on a journey where I started to actually understand. I'd been vegetarian for about 17 years at that point, down to vegan at many points of that, trying very hard to find health and just nothing was working. Nothing was helping me to figure out that I was eating a very, very loaded carbohydrate diet. And it wasn't the refined carbs and sugars that many people eat. So, you know, we get a lot of people that are having like eight liters. We've I met a lady who, the other day who's drinking eight liters of Coca-Cola a day. Um, and I was never that person. I was like the whole grain, organic, grass-fed. Um, everything was so organic and so healthy, but it was laced with carbohydrates and with hidden sugars. And it was making me sick. It was making me diabetic. So I had to go, I had to, I sat and cried and I ate a steak and prayed for the animal spirits and did all the things that I thought I would never do again and found a way back towards health. And that's very much still a journey for me. I think I, I, I did to a large extent permanently damage my metabolism over those years. But I found energy and vitality again through cutting the carbohydrates and starting to eat a low processed food, unrefined diet again, you know, to just really get, go into a journey that wasn't about like green smoothies all the time and juices and it was much more about animal products and getting the proteins I needed and the fats I needed. And then from there, I reached a place where I could start to listen to my body for the first time in decades and or maybe even my whole life to some extent. You know, I started to go, oh, my goodness, I've got, you know, it's, is it normal to have heartburn? Well, no, we've become so used to the fact that there's heartburn medications just right there with the foods, you know, that it's become part of our diet to take all of these, you know, from sort of laxatives to it's heartburn medications to everything in between for the gut. It's the most common source of medication that's not even, don't even need a script for it. It's just there. It's part of the, it's like part of the food system almost. And that's not normal. You know, that's, it's like if we're taking anything, if we're having any symptoms, whether they are on the low end of the scale, like bloating and constipation and diarrhea and heartburn and any of these things, those are the signs your gut's telling you, like, there's a red flag here. And it's not normal. We keep going for 20 years, not listening to those things. And then we wonder why we have autoimmune disease, diabetes, obesity, all of the things that come with it and come with the essentially what I believe comes from the gut. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So, okay. So in this previous career, did I get that right in the introduction that you were actually kind of like working for food companies to market food products to kids? Is that correct? 
My first job was in the pharmaceutical company working for the South Africa's largest pharmaceutical manufacturer, Big Pharma. Um, and then I moved into the food, our largest, I was a brand manager in our largest food manufacturer. It's called Tiger Brands here, and it's really much like the Unilever of South Africa. All of our biggest food basket products are made by them. Um, so I was sitting at a desk selling products and doing what people in big business do. We we are given a portfolio of products and we work to grow it. That's what we do, you know. So to be in that and to understand a, how massive the budgets are and how brilliant the research is in the private sector. Um, and for me, the big, big shock and shift was when I then made the decision as part of my own life journey and health journey to work in the nonprofit sector. I thought there were zeros missing off the research budgets. Honestly, I thought there was a mistake when I first saw what we were working with. Wow. And it was like come from a campaign that was about a beer, a Christmas promotion for a beer. And now I was working on a portfolio of research that was about human metabolic health. And I thought there were zeros missing. You know, it's like there's something wrong here. And that's we know. I mean, that's what we know through research is that the good research and the good, you know, data is, or the, the well-funded research is funded by industry. And it's 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 targeted. So that's what we, the work that I've been doing for these years since then has been go, trying to bring in brilliant minds and bigger budgets into where we need them, which yeah. is in the area that we're working with. You know, it's it, there's always the same story. It's like, where's the data? Where's the data? We have to have massive, cohesive studies that are funded properly, recruited properly analyze properly and present carefully and well that show what we know and that we're trying to what we're trying to achieve and, and that demonstrate the change that's needed in the food system and in the food pyramid in order for us to actually even have a chance at reversing the panic the chronic disease pandemic or I would even argue survival at this point. Yeah. Wow. No, that's so interesting. And that's such a good point. It's sad that we need good marketers like yourself to be on the side of healthy food, but it's true. And, you know, we go to San Diego, we're in this giant room with hundreds of people who are all bought into this like low carbohydrate message and you get the warm and fuzzies and it's amazing you get to hang out with all these amazing people. And, and it's a huge group. And then you walk right outside of the conference center and you realize, oh yeah, okay. Uh, we're nowhere close <laughs> to where we need to be. We've got a long, long way to go. And I guess I've got a question about just your own personal experience and you haven't been there in a little while, but maybe you can just say, you know, kind of what it was like. We've had guests come on our show saying that food companies in particular really have taken the playbook from, from marketing cigarettes and use that same kind of playbook to market food in particular to, to kids. Did, did you notice yeah. that kind of thing going on? So I haven't been to the States since 2019. And I mean, look, it was always a different ball game. You know, the, the way that products are marketed and the way that food is sold in, in the USA is very different to a lot of other countries. And certainly here in South Africa, there's a different approach. Um, but to see the shift from thanks to COVID in the last four years, it was startling to me because it seems like what's happened is that categories have been imploded entirely. So it's very hard as a consumer and that's, of course, done by design to differentiate between food products, natural food products, processed food products, supplements, and medication. 
um, they're, they're all sold together in an in an almost non-discerning way. And it's it was very disturbing for me to see how far that's gone in the last years since I've been there. It's like the category seems to have imploded. Um, product, there, there seems to be less control, not more around what is marketed to children and how. Um, I, I, it's shocking. And what I noticed as a consumer is that it was much harder to get sugar-free foods that didn't have a very sweet taste to them. And in some instances, I actually, I spent $8 at a place in San Diego because the guy promised me that it was a sugar-free um, cacao, hot cacao drink. And I had to throw it away because it was so sweet that I couldn't even drink it. It was, it had at least six teaspoons of sugar. So there's some kind of confusion around what is sweet and also what is healthy. And it seems to have merged. And there are people like yourselves and like the guys at Low Carb USA that are doing such an incredible job, but the impact hasn't reached the average consumer out there that's walking through Walmart with a trolley and is, you know, making quick purchasing decisions. And that's where packaging laws and regulations and regulations around marketing to children seem to have been lost. You know, it seems to have been deprioritized. It's like the certain things shouldn't be sold as breakfast cereals if they are not breakfast, you know, like Pop-Tarts. Why are they being sold in the breakfast category? Why are they there with Kellogg's? And there's so much confusion. So from a top-down aspect, it's like there's so much work to be done. But ultimately, the bottom line and the only way that we can do this as consumers is to just look after ourselves. And to, to make these radical choices that we have to make around, you know, you're an example of that. You said, I'm going to, I'm going to eat in a totally different way and totally defy the food guidelines and the policies to find health. Yeah. And that's what we've had to do. We've all had to do it. We've, you know, at Eat Better South Africa, which is our program here for underserved women in communities, local communities, we just get, tell people how to eat so that they don't need to be on their medication. You know, it's very simple. It's not like rocket science. It's just we give them the, the knowledge that gives them the empowerment to change their lives. Yeah. And it's not difficult to do when you know it and when you see it. It's, you, it can't be unseen. Yeah. So I guess our job is to find a way for this to be seen by enough consumers so that we actually change the way that food is manufactured. Yeah. If we stop buying the unhealthy foods, they will no longer be on the shelves. If we demand healthy foods and we insist on them for our children and we only buy those things, that is what will be there. Yeah. So and we I, have to responsibility yeah. as consumers, I think. Yeah. No, and I love the title, eat better. It's you didn't call it eat perfectly all the time and be super strict. You just said eat better. Like take a step in the right direction. And yeah. you know, I've done really well for the last four and a half years on carnivore. So I don't typically go into the middle part of the grocery store. I usually go to the clearance meat section and find whatever looks good and tastes good or whatever. So I, I after not going to the middle of the store a few weeks ago, I decided like I'm just gonna kind of cruise the aisles and see what's there. And it's shocking to see like brands of candy are now in ice cream. They're in cold cereal. They're in the pop tarts that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. They're in granola bars. They're on every aisle and it's brightly colored. And it like, it looks amazing. There's normally cartoon characters. Like I don't understand. How, yeah, totally. How people have a chance in that world is beyond me. And, and you're right. Like the consumer levels where we need to start and getting this matches out there, out there will help. I'm curious, where did you find out about a low carbohydrate diet, which is exactly the opposite of what you'd been taught when you've been doing your entire life and what was your reaction when you started living that way and started getting better so i did the atkins diet long before it became 
before Banting in South Africa became famous. And it worked well for me. But at the same time that I was on it, I lost a sister to cancer. And that made me go into fear mode. And I abandoned it totally and went back to a very plant-based diet for many years and then saw deterioration and deterioration. And then I joined, when I joined the Noakes Foundation, I was eating kind of an average carb diet. And in the first week that I was at the Noakes Foundation, Donnell O'Neill and Sami Inkinen were in South Africa launching Serial Killers 2. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's a brilliant documentary. And I watched it and we had a conversation afterwards and I said to my fiance on the way home, I'm never, I'm I'm done. I'm not eating carbs. And I literally didn't eat a carb, a single carbohydrate for about four years after that. I was under 20 grams of net carbs a day. It was amazing for me for a long time, but then I needed to bring in some carbs again into my diet. And I needed to start listening to my body and changing the way that I ate. And that's how we go through life. You know, we, we change as we go, especially as women, our, our hormones change, our life circumstances change. We have to keep listening. We have to keep changing. We have to keep bringing in things that are working for us. We have to explore diversity, whether it's, you know, in our diet and in our microbiome and in other areas in our lives through the biome that we're exposed to. Um, we have to keep changing and we have to keep learning. So that is what we, I think we're doing as a community and we're finding ways to include the reality that we're all slightly different, but that there are common broad brushstrokes around the, the errors in the dietary system. And that's what we have to tackle. You know, it's like somebody that's eating 90% refined carbohydrates, which is what we're seeing certainly in our country and South Africa, and I think it's pretty similar in the States. It's there's no you cannot argue that it's a healthy diet. You know, it's like no matter how it's constituted, it's just that is not a diet fit for human health. And that has to change. And within that, there are many ways that you can do that. And you can do it in a way that you find out what's right for your body and your biome. And that's so important. And it's, it has so many legs to it. You know, I was, when I was at the height of my vegetarianism, I was like one of those really, you know, confident. And I believe that like everyone that ate any meat was going to, you know, die and their guts were rotting. And I found this, I was going through some old boxes of my mom's and I found this old meal plan that my grandparents had. It was a menu from a dinner that my grandparents had been to. And it was like, meat, 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 meat. It was a 10 course meal. I think even the dessert was like a meat of some kind, like a sweet meat. It was amazing to see. It was like, okay, well, this is where we come from. This is where I come from. It's only a couple of generations back. But, you know, we all know when we look on the ancestral journey of where we've come from that we're not eating a diet that's right for humanity and that's fit for human consumption right now. Yeah. And the, the work that we're doing and that I'm doing is to bring that back. So it's to bring it into healthcare in a way that doctors and nurses and dietitians start to include alternative perspectives and start to bring in a more comprehensive um, non-allopathic medicational approach to the treatment of chronic disease. And which is ultimately, we're trying to move away from the discussion around disease and say, well, you know, what does it take to be healthy? Like not, we don't want to be not sick. We want to be vibrant, healthy and alive. And that's, that's where we're hoping that humanity can be heading. But when we look at the numbers, it's not really great right now. Yeah. You know, it's like we have to make these radical choices that are rebellious 
to be healthy and to live a vibrant life, which yep. is our birthright. Yep. It, mm. I, I love that. That's such a great point. It's always interesting when you see like menus from the Titanic or whatever, that very, very meat heavy. That's what we would have wanted. And it's not only that we wanted the meat, it's that you, you have to remember that a lot of plant foods would not have been as widely available as they are now. If you lived in a Northern climate, you couldn't eat mangoes. Now you can like it. All of that has changed in the context of how we get our food and how we produce our food. Um, I'm really curious. This always um, makes me curious to know. I, I, I believe it's a little bit more complicated to do a low carbohydrate diet with women than it is for men. That's just based on my experience. How does a female know if she's maybe pushed a low carbohydrate diet a little bit too far and she needs to start reintroducing um, some carbohydrates back into the diet? And what does that look like? So the first thing I'm going to say is that if you, if you listen to your gut, it will normally tell you. So that's one of the big things is like, is your gut really healthy? Or are you having to do things around to get to have like a very healthy, you know, a bowel movements at least a couple once or a few times a day, ideally? Are there signs that are coming from your body that are telling you that there's something wrong, like actual pain or niggles? Um, or, you know, kind of different noises or feelings that are coming from your digestive system. Those are all things that are direct communication tools. And then beyond that, of course, not everyone, as we talked about earlier, not everyone's guts are actually aligned in a way that they can feel. So we don't necessarily even feel pain or feel the discomfort anymore. We can be so far from the connection to our actual gut and our bodies. Well, then it's like, are you actually feeling good? You know, so it's, it's very obvious. It's like if you're on a, eating a diet that makes you well, you should feel good every day. You should have energy. You shouldn't feel like crap when you wake up in the morning and need to mainline coffee necessarily to actually wake up. You should sleep okay. And those are the obvious things. And And if those aren't in place, then we can't really say that our diet is serving us necessarily. And, of course, beyond that is that we have to look at other things too, which are not necessarily um, – talked about or, you know, kind of explored enough, particularly with women, but with everyone is around what the underlying traumas and stresses are in your life. So it's not always about diets. It's also about the environment that you're consuming and the environment that you are living and operating in. And, you know, if there's trauma that you haven't processed, haven't resolved, or daily traumas, which we all live with in different ways, that are affecting you, then your gut isn't going to work and your system is not going to be in balance enough to actually receive what it is that you're taking in. Because ultimately, particularly when we talk about the gut, the gut is the thing that allows us to convert whatever it is that we ingest into energy, which is ultimately a way to health. It's our path to health. And if we are not able to actually absorb and receive that that we're taking in, we're very unlikely to be healthy and vibrant and, and well. So there's so many aspects to it, and particularly women, you know, we've got different systems, things change in our cycle and throughout our life cycle. So we have different needs. You have to figure out what it is that your body needs and is your diet able to do that? And again, another thing is supplements. You know, medication is, of course, one thing. It's like a lot of people are on so many medications. Well, why are you on the medication? And what can we do to make sure that you don't need to take the medication forever necessarily? You know, like, let's look at the underlying cause. And again, with supplements, if you're having to 
constantly supplement your diet? Well, can you start to bring in things so that you don't need the supplements? Like what's a way to get that from your diet? That's where it's always come from. Supplements are a relatively new thing to humanity. We haven't lived on supplements throughout the history of humanity and civilization. We've lived on the food, the food from the ground that we eat from should feed us and should be enough for us. So how do we get back to that? Yeah. And it's not always easy. Not always easy. There's a lot of things missing from our, you know, our soils are depleted, our systems are depleted. So we want to have plasters, but not um, permanent plasters. Let's all work. Let's find ways to get our bodies back into homeostatic health. Yeah. Yeah. And well, you mentioned trauma and I remember you talking about some of your own traumas that you were dealing with. And part of that was cultural, right? Just being in South Africa carries with it a bit of kind of cultural trauma as well. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So I went through a period where I was exposed to violent crime that actually was a very big life trauma for me. But over and above that, in South Africa, at least one in three women are have been raped and or sexually abused in childhood. And there is an environment that is quite high in trauma. So, you know, we have a high crime rate. Um, we have one of the highest murder rates in the world. We live in an environment that is a very, very high poverty environment. Um, and that's so what we live in is a culture where there is a lot of trauma that is endemic in our society here. And that's not to say that, you know, first world countries don't, and people that live in first world environments don't suffer from constant trauma and from other kinds of trauma. So I grew up here in South Africa and very had a very, very privileged, lucky childhood and life and, and was never really exposed to anything bad. And then I moved to England to study. I was do, doing an MBA in the north of England and I was exposed to like more crime in the years that I lived in England than I had in a lifetime in South Africa. I mean, there was the London bombings happened while I lived in London. Um, there were there was a huge amount of violence and societal crime in the north of England where I studied. So the, the and then there was just the average trauma of like actually getting on a train to work and walk, you know, living in a big city. And those things are immense to the actual human nervous system. And when we start to look at our guts, we start to, we can't not address and look at the vagus nerve, which is the big highway that goes from our, you know, from our brain to our gut ultimately and feeds all of the organs that are involved in digestion. And the vagus nerve is the kind of, it's the big leveler. It's the nerve that is responsible for that switch between sympathetic and parasympathetic states of awareness. And if we are living, which most of us are, if we're living in a sympathetic state where we are in fight or flight in some way, to some extent, we are not able to digest our food. The body does not digest food when it is adrenalized and when it's in a sympathetic state. It's We are designed not to digest the blood. Actually, physiologically, the blood flows away from the intestines towards the extremities of the body. There isn't enough um, circulation to properly digest and assimilate food. So physiologically, we should not be eating when we're stressed. And as the only mammals on earth that eat in a stressed state, we have to wonder why. And if we eat when we're in a stressed state, we do comfort eating, stress eating, eating on the go, eating on the run, and eating with in an environment that is a stressor is not inducive to, to health. It's not, not going to allow us to digest our food ultimately. Yeah. So we have to start there, I think. I think it's a place to start is to go, you know, am I in a condition right now to be eating? Yeah. 
which is what many people eat when they're stressed. It's their most, you know, immediate thing. It starts in childhood. It starts with babies. It's like they're given food all the time to calm them. But are we able to absorb and assimilate food when we are stressed? No. Yeah. Physiologically. Wow. Okay. So that blew my mind when you said that during your presentation, it makes perfect sense. We're the only mammal that consumes food when we're stressed. That is, it's, it's mind blowing, but it makes, again, it makes perfect sense. Um, how, how can we teach ourselves to relax and to get in that parasympathetic state to better digest our food? What things can we be thinking about to bring ourselves back down into a chill mode so that we can digest our food better? So the common things which are evidence-based, so it's not like um, I'm not sort of telling you to go on a yoga retreat for three years in the Himalayas, but breath, breathing, conscious breathing that connects and goes beyond the diaphragm. So when we start to actually breathe into our bellies and deeper, instead of just breathing, shallow breathing, we are connecting and actually moving the, the gut system, the digestive system. So if you don't take a deep breath, you actually don't bring movement down all the way down your torso or your abdomen towards your bowels. So one of the great things that one can start to do is to just breathe deeply and consciously and to take some conscious breaths before you eat. But then throughout the day, there are so I mean, anything that alleviates stress is what you need to be doing. So for you, it might be going to a jujitsu class. For me, it's going for a walk in nature and in the mountain, and it's doing things like yoga and meditation. Those are known, you know, any movement and exercise is known to support stress. Some exercises less than others. So, you know, something that, that is quite high intensity doesn't always support a sympathetic nervous system for somebody that's been through trauma. So there's some exercises that are more conducive, sort of a like slightly lower intensity exercise range. Um, and then many, many other things. So there are so many, so many techniques from somatic to meditate, meditative to everything else that can really support the vagus system, the vagus nerve. Other things that are known to support it are things like cold water plunges, um, actually just putting cold water on your face. And there are a lot of techniques that activate the different points of the vagus nerve. So, you know, we know it starts, we know the actual channel and route that the vagus nerve takes through the body. And there are many, many techniques that you can use. For me, yoga is one of the most useful because it uses the entire movement of the spine, which is ultimately the same track or kind of highway that the vagus nerve takes. So I find if I just do a couple of minutes of yoga and in particular some things like anything that moves and twists and supports spinal movement tends to talk to the vagus nerve and, and support moving into a parasympathetic state. And then there are many things like connection, intimacy, intimacy, um, hugging, being with others. And then from an eating perspective, one of the most important things is the environment that you eat in. So if you're eating around, you know, if you're eating on the go or driving or in public transport systems, which is what many people do, um, you're not going to necessarily be relaxed. But if you're eating in an environment with people that you feel connected and positive to experience, you know, have positive experiences with, that not with people that stress you out, um, you know, rather than eat around, like sit in silence in nature, that's a really, really good one. Eat with pets. I'm not saying like on the floor with your pets, but in the environment with animals. Um, anything like that is conducive towards a, a more assimilative experience of your digestion. And that's what we want to move towards. We want this genius mechanism that connects our, you know, the, the kind of external world to our interior, ultimately through a cling film uh, width of a membrane that allows 
food to go to to pass through a, a membrane into our bodies and become energy and become the life force that feeds us and takes us through this life. It's a very genius thing. And to do it in a conscious way where we are able to absorb the food is the most important thing. Yeah. So we have to look, we have to look at that. We cannot ignore it and say, you know, I'm just going to eat down this protein shake on the way to the gym driving. Well, I would be surprised if you have found optimal health doing that. Yeah. But maybe some people can, you know. Yeah. Certainly not from my experience. Mm. So I've been able to eat them. I've eaten the perfect diet and found that my health hasn't improved because I haven't been looking at the way that my nervous system interacts with my gut and the way that my mind and body are connected and need to be fed simultaneously and in a healthy, vibrant life-giving way. Yeah, no, that's so good. Just to reiterate for the listener, Jane did not tell everybody to go eat pet food with their pets. She said, have pets <laughs> around, different things. Don't get confused. That's not what she said. Um, and I've noticed- Eat the dogs. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I've noticed for myself, I could have a smaller meal kind of earlier in the afternoon when I'm between clients and things are pretty chill and not much is going on. I can have some eggs or just whatever snack. But but literally, my, my main meal, I have to have my laptop closed closed for the day. I've got a hard kind of a stop in my head that it's, it's about this time, whatever work I got done, I got done. This is the motion that closes the laptop. And now I do feel that like bit of relax and release. And that's when I have my biggest meal. I didn't do that really consciously. It's just something that kind of got worked in and that, that's got to be a huge part of it. Absolutely. And I mean, other things are of course, just slowing down. That's one of the most important things is actually to chew your food. That's the number one digestive trick and aid is to chew your food for longer and slower. And we're not doing that. We just, people tend to be wolfing down food rather than actually enjoying the, the experience of eating, which is the most, our most ancient um, social connector. There's so much, you know, the thing about food is there's so much attached to it and it should be a joyful, relaxing, positive experience. So to be super stressed about what you're eating and the macros and the micros and exactly like the, the scientific aspects of food is useful if you are really on a very, you know, if you're diabetic and you're like really going for something super strict for a short period of time. But the ideal situation, and that's what we, we address quite a lot in mind-body medicine, is to find a relaxed, comfortable healthy relationship to the food that you're eating. So that is, you know, to be, to be well is to be healthy. It's to be balanced. It's to be joyful in your experience of the way that you prepare food and connect to food. So that is, of course, that's ideally either growing or rearing your own food if you can, or at least being connected in some way to the food that you eat. And rather than this kind of modern world that we live in where we just, pa everything's packaged and we just kind of totally disassociated. So we're seeing children that, uh, you know, have a more. We know that Ronald McDonald has a higher brand recall than um, Santa Claus or Father Christmas in the world globally, for oh. example. So more children know him. You know, that's that's where we're at. It's like the children don't recognize vegetables anymore because they've never seen a vegetable and cut it themselves. And we are disconnected in ways that are dis disserving of our humanity and our origin. Yeah. And the microbiome is, of course. You know, it's made of bacteria and fungi and things that are very, very ancient. And it requires a connection to nature and to the actual physical earth, which is which is where the microbiome comes from, is the actual earth. 
and the sort of earth of, or the biome of our mothers at birth, ideally. You know, and if we're so disconnected, we're eating in very sanitized environments where food is no longer actually showing vibrancy or presence of the kind of bacteria that we require to survive and to reach health. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's super interesting. You had some beautiful slides in your presentation about some of those open markets where people were touching all the food and everything was a little bit dirty and not totally sanitized. And these cultures around the world, they don't they don't break things down the way that we try to. They don't identify the micros and the macros and all the things that we like to do. It's it's culture. It's it's sharing, it, which is exactly how we would have evolved. Like, you know, maybe you have a bit of stress earlier in the day as you're going out looking for your food. You're going to hunt. You're going to gather. But once you get it, you have enough that you you can then share with everybody in the group. And so that does kind of support that sympathetic and parasympathetic state that you were talking about. You had some fascinating information about the microbiome. We've mentioned the vagus nerve. You already mentioned that the brain and the gut are one and the same. How literal is that? So we have our gut is made up of and interconnected to something that's called the enteric nervous system, which is basically a map of neurons and nerve pathways that come out of the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve comes down from our brain. It goes, it wanders through our abdomen and across most of our organs. Um, I've got a brilliant picture of one that I usually share. And then it, it turns into a kind of a, an incredible little, um, almost like a capillary network that is enmeshed in the small intestine. And that is, you know, and, and the other parts of the, the intestine, intestinal tract as well. And that is how the communication goes. So what we know is that up to 90% of our serotonin um, receptors are actually in the gut. They're not in the brain. So if our brains on, you know, if we're struggling with serotonin um absorption presence if we're on things like SSRIs we've got to start to look at what's actually going on in our gut because what we now understand and what science is now showing us is that mental illness is usually gut illness it's one and the same thing so this this super nerval, neural system and pathway that connects our gut is why it's called the second nervous system or the gut brain, the enteric nervous system, is directly talking to and constantly communicating with the brain. And that's what tells us what our body needs ultimately. So if that is not healthy and connected and if the gut is not healthy and connected, then our brain is not healthy and connected and it's not getting the food and the micronutrients that it needs because it's not talking, they're not talking to each other in healthy ways anymore. And that's so important. It's like our gut and our brains ultimately are one and the same thing. And we've made this distinction. We, you know, we have our gastroenterologist and then our psychiatrist and they're like looking at the and whatever else we've got, all these specialists that are very siloed, they've stopped looking at the entire system and the body so when you go to your gastroenterologist and they put a scope down your stomach and they tell you that you've got whatever's going on in there and then they put you onto the medication related to it, they're not saying to you, well, what's happening with your mental health and vice versa. So very, very few psychiatrists, there are a couple now that are, that are saying, okay, well, what's happening with your digestive health? You know, or, you know you've got these mental health problems, but what about the other systems and what are the problems going on? Are they communicating with each other and how can we bring back that communication. And this is where the vagus nerve becomes important and why so many people are so passionate about it is because it's that nerve, it's that connector between the gut and the brain ultimately. Yeah. And if we can, can reconnect 
the, the gut to the brain and remember that they are actually the same thing and that they are these genius mechanisms that have, and the other thing that's really amazing about the gut and the brain is that they're the two places, there's a couple of places in the body, but particularly the gut and the brain have these barriers, these tight, bar- tight, thin barriers. So there's the blood brain barrier and there's the gut blood barrier. And they are the two most essential barriers in the body for survival and for health. So if our gut is leaky, uh, we, you know, when we're going to see some major problems coming up through inflammation and through what's happening in our systems are, are going to be completely out of balance, out of functionality. It relies on that tight barrier being healthy and well. And as is the brain, you know, the leaky brain is the, and the leaky gut are problems that we're seeing now where there's these barriers are not being adhered to and they are not well. Yeah. And because of that, we are not able to digest ultimately. Yeah. Well, you mentioned some doctors doing some great work out there in mental health and the relation between mental health and the the food that we eat. One of them, Dr. Georgia Eat, I believe it was her that said, last time I checked, I'm pretty sure the brain is connected to the rest of the body. We treat it as a separate entity, like you said, but it is part of the body. It's, <laughs> we don't need to treat yeah. it as a, as a separate thing. Um, where are we currently with our understanding of the microbiome itself? It seems like we, we hear something that diversity in the microbiome is amazing. And then the next week, somebody will say, well, maybe it's not all that important. You need lots of different, you know, variety of foods, fruits and vegetables, you know, carnivores say you don't need any of that. Like wh- what do we know about the microbiome? Are we still very, very much in the infancy of understanding it? So the microbiome is something that we can't ever really, I believe, like I understand there's a lot of new science coming out and we know a lot more than we did say 20 or even 50 years ago, but we cannot understand and map out the structure and and how the microbiome looks because it is so diverse and unique. And that's the reality. It's like this patch of soil here that I have on my mountain and the patch of soil two kilometers away. And then the soil that you, you know, next to where you live, how we will never, ever be able to understand the, the, the actual minuscule breakdown of what that is composed of. It's, it's unique, entirely unique, as is the universe, as is the composition of like stars in the sky. Um, and we know that because when we look at the microbiome, we understand there are 10 times more microbes in the microbiome than there are cells in the human body. So it's, it's 10 times ultimately more unique, diverse, and arguably important and we just cannot understand, you know, we can, we'll keep going forever. And yes, there is a lot of science that like breaks down. Someone came to me after my talk and she had an amazing um, test with a beautiful pie chart of the exact composition of the, the, the different microbes in her microbiome with like 60 different details. And she was asking me for advice on it. And it's like, the, these things are really important, but we don't want to test too much when it comes to the microbiome because we want to just allow it to communicate better with us. So it's like if you're eating some, if you take a good thing to do is to do a diet that's eliminates that eliminates many things and then slowly bring them back in. And that's what a lot of integrative doctors and functional doctors do these days is they put someone on a very restrictive diet for a while, if not a fast. And then they say, right, listen to how your body feels when you eat the egg or the piece of bread or the butter, whatever it is. It's like, it's very common sense. So we can over-medicate and we can go into the science very deeply if we want to, but ultimately our journey as a human being is to understand what this microbiome is that this body is made of and how we can feed it healthily in a way that's going to give us the best possible outcome, which is hopefully a healthy long life, if that's what we want. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
So, so, and that's not the same for everyone. And every microbiome, if we know that there's only 10% similarity between microbiomes, our job is to figure out what ours needs on a day-to-day basis. And until we find that, we will not find health. Yeah. We'll just keep going forever through the science. Yeah. Well, your research on the gut and and its relation to all of this stuff, including the brain, is absolutely wonderful. Your presentation was amazing. Is there anything I haven't asked you about the gut and and its importance in health before I ask you about the Nutrition Network? So I think the gut, what I want to say about the gut as well is that I went through that phase where I read every study and I'm a, I'm a big science reader. So I was like reading every study and I was determined to eat the perfect diet, which was, you know, every food group that you look at, you find the pros and the cons. You can find the study on everything. And I went through a stage where I was, on, to be honest, I was basically eating like broccoli, lettuce leaves, olive oil and eggs. And then I found a study that made olive oil seem like it was less healthy. And it was like, I kept limiting myself more and more to the point that it became almost unmanageable. And then my health took a really serious knock because of it. And I had to just change my approach to things and to like expand my repertoire and my horizons and have more fun with it and be more experimental and take myself less seriously. And I think that's important. You know, we get very serious about our diets and our guts are they are they are unique, extraordinary things that we have to allow the opportunity to communicate with us. So it is actually communication 101. It's like, what is going on here in my body? And then what can I do to respond to it? Like, do we talk to us? Do we talk to ourselves? Do we talk to our guts and listen to them? Or do they listen to us and do we respond and change? And that, you know, that's how the nervous system works. It's like, it's always talking to us. It's telling us things all the time. It's telling us about environments that we're not comfortable in. And we, we override those things constantly because the modern world tells us to put other things before our health and our guts and our intuitive feelings. So we know what we need ultimately. We just have to find a way to start to listen better and experiment better to allow the feedback loops to come in. I love that. Yeah, I love that. You've given us so many good Mm -hmm. practical tips and tricks that we can bring more of that into our lives. So I really do appreciate that. Tell us about the Nutrition Network and tell us what your mission is and what your priorities are. So, yeah, so we started off wanting to train 30 doctors in South Africa because we didn't have people to refer uh, people that were on our programs to when they had medical conditions. And we now have trained over 7,000 healthcare workers around the world. We're in over 120 countries. And we basically, our mission and our dream is to change healthcare one practitioner at a time. So understanding the impact that healthcare workers and coaches now have on patients and how they have the, you know, through this network that we've built, we believe that we do have the potential to change the world for the better. And that's through one practitioner and then one person and every meal that they have at a time. It's like, how do we actually educate people better? How do we support them to come off chronic medications that they've been on for decades that are just making them sicker? How do we reverse chronic disease? Well, it's through healthcare. It's through the actual practitioners and the people that work with them, the coach them in particular. So we're seeing a junction more and more between, you know, how traditional healthcare and coaching needs to come together, particularly with the diabetes and obesity reversal. The biggest and best results come when we work together. Yeah. Let me give you a really recent example of why this message is so important. I did a consultation for somebody. This has now been four years, four and a half years ago before the pandemic. Um, very type two diabetic. I believe he was in his late thirties. Um, 
he, he was desperate. I mean, he really needed help. And he came to see me as a health coach. The person who referred me knew I did low carbohydrate. I got one touch with this guy. We did our consultation, took an hour, hour and a half, something like that. I told him, okay, like with diabetes, like carbohydrate is now a poison to you. You need to start to get this out. Let's try eating more fats, more proteins, and that kind of thing. I never really got a chance to follow up with him much. We ended up following each other on social media and I'd send him an encouraging message here or there. Just yesterday, I saw the picture in the hospital bed with the very first amputation and this, this foot looked really bad, <laughs> really, really, really bad. And his whole priority for changing his health, was he wanted to play with his kids. He wanted to be alive for his kids and knowing the stats that we know now about what happens after you get your first amputation, it, it's not good. It's just not looking that great. And I, I, I reflect on that and think like, what could I have done to have more impact, but also knowing if his doctors knew, if, if some of the nurses knew the people that he's been working with could also have given more information or reinforced what we were talking about. Maybe he would have had a better chance when it was early enough that he could have reversed everything. So that's why this message, it's just so critical. We have to get to the practitioners so they can start to get the message a little bit more from the top down. You know, I've got, we've got a cleaner who is just the most wonderful lady, but she has got terrible hypertension. I mean, so bad, like we don't even know how she gets to work some days. And she's on so many medications. She's obese, she's diabetic, and she puts four brown sugars into her tea three times a day when she comes to work. And she will, 23 years ago, a nurse in a clinic said to her, with your blood pressure, you can have sugar as long as it's brown sugar, and that's the healthy one. And 23 years later, that nurse is still in her mind. Like, she will not give it up. Healthcare workers don't, and nurses in particular, they're a really, really big influencer group, don't realize the impact they have on patients and the little things that they say are there forever for some patients. And that's like, that person and could be solely responsible for her, you know, long-term her death ultimately. It's like she still believes that person. So they have, they have to be better education. There has to be really clear understanding of nutrition. And it's unfortunately not communicated in medical school. You know, we know that. It's like doctors are not taught nutrition. So they don't know that. They think that's the dietitian's job. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you think about that quantity of sugar one time a day multiplied by as many times as a day, as you said, by one year, by 23 years, that is a literal mountain of sugar over that course of a lifetime. When you have five liters of blood in your body with less than a teaspoon of sugar circulating at any given time, no wonder health is, is where it is. But, but I love the mission. I love the work that you guys are doing. I followed the Timothy Noakes foundation for a very long time. Like I said, in the introduction, we were very fortunate to host him on the show. And I'm so glad I got to be introduced to you and all your research and got to meet you in person in San Diego. Uh, this was a lovely conversation. I learned so much. And like I said, I think we're walking away with a lot of really good practical tips and tricks that we can all implement in our lives. So Jane Bullen, where would you like people to go to find you, to connect with you and your work? So our website, nutrition-network.org. Um, and you can find us on all social media platforms. And yeah, we, we're hopefully we're everywhere. We should be easy to find. <laughs> Absolutely. And and being the marketer that you are, you're, you're a big part of that and pushing that message forward. And yeah, we're, there's too many of these stories of people that haven't found the right information and have really suffered and the people around them who've suffered. We're in a bad place. And so to get this message out any way that we can is, is so critical. And you're just such a big part of that. So Jane, thank you so very much for all the work that you do. Thank, thank you for your wonderful research and presentation about the gut and the gut health. And thank you for taking time to be on our show today. We really appreciate it you. 
Thank you so much, Casey. It's lovely to be here and to get to know you a bit better. Yeah, it was lovely to host you. And this has been another episode of Balanced Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. I know I say this all the time, but I really do mean it. It has been such a joy to make and produce this podcast and to watch it grow. Our business started in the pandemic in July of 2020, and we started the podcast in October of 2020. So it has been three years now. And to see that we have generated over 400,000 downloads worldwide is just simply unbelievable to me. This year in particular has been such a blast to travel to different health conferences and not only meet some of our amazing guests, but also to meet many of you, our listeners and supporters. We really just can't thank you enough. As always, feel free to book a complimentary 30-minute session on our website, which is myboundlessbody.com. On our homepage, there is a book now button where you can find a time to speak with us about health, fitness, nutrition, whatever you like. We've loved chatting with people all over the world and many of you out there to bounce ideas off each other or to try to come up with plans to achieve specific goals. Or even if it's just to reach out to introduce yourselves, we would just love to meet you and connect with you there. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube channel if you'd like to watch these full interviews and also the shorter interviews on more specific topics that are taken from these full interviews. We've gotten really good feedback over there. It's also a really fun way to interact with people who comment we read and reply to every single youtube comment we get so head on over there if you want to start a conversation and watch these um, videos as always if you haven't already please leave us a five-star rating and review on apple it really is the best way to make sure this podcast gets out there to more listeners we've been able to keep boundless body radio ad free for three years and really want to continue to do so and so your five-star ratings and reviews are the best way to support us at boundless body and support the podcast cheers thank you again so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio.